Great to see all of you here tonight. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Pastor said I could do whatever I want, so we're, we're taking a little break from Abraham. And so, at least for tonight. So, uh, Proverbs 3 came to mind pretty quickly after uh, he sent that. So, uh, let me read these verses to you. And um, you're familiar with a couple of them at least. And then we'll talk about it. Beginning in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean, and, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be, will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Just because a house looks good on the inside doesn't mean that it looks good on the outside. A number of years ago, we bought a house and they were redoing it on the inside. The house had originally had Chinese drywall that was used on the inside. And um, that was for a number of, of years there in, in Florida, that was common to, to apparently to use that. And uh, from 2001 to 2009, drywall was imported from China and used in residential areas. And it was known to have certain health hazards like uh, respiratory issues and chronic coughing, difficulty breathing. So naturally over time, people began removing that from home. So this house was one of those. And this couple that, that we had known, they, they bought this house and they were going to fix it up and flip it. And so we, we bought it from them. And um, they removed, all, uh, pretty much gutted the whole inside. And, uh, and we felt pretty good about it. We thought, man, we're, this is going to be practically like a new house. I mean, it's got new internal air conditioning and pretty much new flooring and, uh, you know, carpet upstairs. I mean, you know, we, we, we thought, man, this is great. We're not going to do anything to this house. This is just perfect. And so we move in and, and uh, you know, it's going well for a while. But just because you update the inside doesn't mean the outside is updated, right? So things begin happening on the outside. And uh, we started getting little notes from the HOA in the mailbox. This was a real strict HOA. And because their job is to keep the neighborhood looking visually appealing from the outside. And so there was a note, hey, you need to do something with the yard. And so we, we took care of that. And and hey, you need to pressure wash your driveway. And so we did that. And then we had stucco that was cracked and, and the builder fixed that. And, and, and over time, you know, the, the outside began to catch up on the inside or catch up with the inside. But just because uh, a, a house looked good on the inside, it doesn't equal a total renovation. And uh, you probably watched Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines and if you notice, you pay attention to what they do. They, the inside looks really good, but they also give attention to the outside. They may reside the yard. They do redo the landscape and they paint the house. They add some curb appeal so that the house will, will be nice for the couple and perhaps eventually have a nice resale one day. You know, the outside of the home needs to match the quality of the inside. And when it comes to the Christian life, when God changes us on the inside, there should be some outside differences because of that interchange. There should be manifestation on the outside that, man, something has changed about this person. Some, something's changed about this lady. And there, there should be differences in us. So tonight I want to talk about a total makeover. Okay, a total makeover in the Christian life. What does that look like? 
And you could probably list a number of things, but just from Proverbs chapter 3, I want to give you three things that we must do in order to reveal that we have, been, we have experienced a total makeover. Now, originally, I wanted to do just Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 and keep it simple. And I was going to call it something like back to the basics and talk about trusting in God. And I began studying this and realizing this is in a larger context. You can't just pull verses 5 and 6 out really without looking at the larger context and, being, and doing justice to it. So we'll go all the way through verse 12. But this is just a simple Bible study. I'm just going to walk down beginning in verse uh, 5, and we'll just walk through these verses together. The book of Proverbs contains 800 Proverbs. Most of them were written by Solomon. Now, you remember uh, back in 1 Kings, 1 chapter, uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, where Solomon asked for wisdom. Remember, he asked God, I need a discerning heart. I need a dis- an understanding mind to govern your people. And uh, he said, these are a great people. And so God gave him wisdom. He became known as the wisest man who ever lived. And so God used him to write these 800 Proverbs, well, most of these 800 Proverbs. So a couple others wrote some as well. And so if we want to gain wisdom, uh, we should pay attention to what Solomon says. So Solomon wanted his son to know that God is the ultimate source of wisdom. That's what he says um, in uh, chapter 1 and verse 2. He said, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Uh, it begins with a proper view of God. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and, and instruction. In chapter 2, and verse 6, he says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He's speaking to his son, and he's saying, Son, you, you need to look to God for wisdom. He will be all that you need. He's, he's the one that can fulfill you. And so he comes in now in, verse, uh, in chapter 3 and verse 5, and if you've been into church for any length of time, you know these verses really well. Well, there's, there's, there's three commands in these, in these, um, in these verses, uh, 5 through 12, at least three commands. So I've built my points uh, based off of those. And the first one is trust. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust is used in the book of Psalms 52 times. It's used uh, 18 times in the book of Proverbs. Trust always has an object of confidence. You're trusting in something. You're trusting in someone. And that object of confidence is what you're putting your hope in. Um, it's, it's used literally, like to, to physically, to, to lean upon something, like I'm, I'm trusting this thing to hold me up. Or it's used metaphorically or figuratively to, to rely upon something for, or for help or protection. I'm depending on something for help or protection. In verse, uh, Proverbs 28, 26, it says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. So whoever's relying upon his own wisdom, his own, his own mind is, 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 is not wise. And so in Proverbs 3, the object of that trust is God. So he's saying, trust in the Lord. Trust in the faithful God of the universe, the, the almighty God with all power. He's the one that you want to trust in. Now, this word originally meant to lie down face down on the ground, uh, just completely just stretched out on the floor. That's what, that's what this word trust mean, means. If I were to lay out just flat on the ground before my kids, I'm trusting that they're not going to jump on me, which they probably would. I'm trusting they're not going to tickle me or do something that's going to irritate me. That, that, that just means I'm, I'm trusting them. But that's what the word means. It means I lay down in front of someone face down, just in a helpless position. You're saying, I'm at your mercy. I'm, I'm trusting you're not going to do anything that's going to hurt me. Uh, the, the word is used 
In Psalm 22, verse 9, and at the last part of verse 9, it refer, David's wrote that psalm. He said he refers to when he was a helpless baby at his mother's breast. Just at a, as a baby is, is dependent on the mother for everything, for food, for clothing, for baths, everything. He's saying, God, I, I, I trust in you. I'm, I'm completely dependent on you to take care of me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. When we trust God, we're saying, God, I'll do my part, but I'm, I'm trusting you that you're going to hold up your end of this deal and you're going to provide for me. Uh, one source said this, trusting in God literally means to bet your life on God's truth and wisdom. It means I'm not holding back anything. Look, look, look how much he says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. No one appreciates uh, half-hearted commitment or a half-finished job. No one appreciates a car that's half-washed. No one appreciates a room that's half-vacuumed or dishes half-washed or a house half-clean. Have you all seen those, the AT&T, the OK commercials? Have you all seen some of those? So the OK, the okay mechanic, like, you guys, uh, you guys, y'all good at brakes here? Yeah, we're OK. He goes, just OK? He goes, yeah. The mechanic says, um, we have a saying here. If, if the brakes don't stop it, something will. He goes, that's not a saying. He goes, yeah, it is. Yeah, I came up with it. And uh, but that's the okay mechanic. There's an okay surgeon, an okay tattooist. The point is, we're not okay, we're not okay with being okay. There's there's something nobody wants a half-hearted commitment. If you're if you lead a team at your work, you don't want half-hearted effort from your employees. So none of us are okay with half-heartedness. So why would God be okay with our half-hearted trust? Why would He be okay with God? I'm just going to trust you halfway. I'm not going to be fully committed to you. But no, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Give, give him everything you have. Heart represents mind, emotions, and will to the very center of your, of your being. It means to trust God with every area of your life. And, and one thing I love about the Bible is it's so practical. So he's going to tell us exactly, exactly what that looks like. So we don't have to wonder, well, what does that mean? What does that mean to trust, trust the Lord with all my heart? Well, he tells us the first thing it says uh, you don't lean on your own understanding. You don't lean on your own. That's the first thing. When you trust God, it means you don't lean on your own understanding. Now, leaning also is also used metaphorically and literally in Scripture. In Numbers 21, 15, it refers to a hill that leans to the border of Moab. So it's right up against the border of Moab. That's, that's what it means literally. But figuratively, it's used in Isaiah 10, 20 of people who trust in God. Leaning, leaning is not just like a, you know, a casual leaning. Leaning literally means like to sit in a chair. Like I'm, I'm totally depending on that chair to support me. It's very close to the word trust. And so the, Solomon is saying the wise follower of God doesn't put his weight, his or her weight or trust in his own understanding. Now this word for understanding, this is kind of tricky. This word for understanding is used um, uh, earlier in Proverbs chapter one, it's in verse two, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. So it's used in a positive way there. Then it's also used in chapter two, verse three. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Well, that, that, that's a good thing. Solomon is saying, if you call out for God, he will give you understanding. Yet in this verse is saying, do not lean on your own understanding. Same word, Used in a negative way. What's the difference? Well, the difference is it's your own understanding. Earlier in Proverbs, it's God's wisdom. It's God's understanding that's coming to you. In this verse, it's your own 
human understanding. So he's saying, don't depend, don't trust in your own human wisdom, in your, in your own understanding. And that, that's harder as we get older, right? Because you have some experiences under your belt and some victories. And man, you've, you've seen some great things. And it's easier when you, when you have that to just rely on, now wait a minute, let, let me just depend on my own, on my own wisdom here. I, I've seen this before. He said, son, don't do that. Don't, don't lean on your own understanding. Now, in the second illustration of what it looks like to trust in God, he says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, acknowledge God. Now, the word for acknowledge is the verb to know. In all your ways, know God. So it's, it means to know him personally. Now, to know God means to obey him. In all your ways, know him personally and obey him. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it says that Eli's sons were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And if you read more in the passage, you realize they weren't obeying him. They weren't, they weren't leading and that they were, uh, if I remember right, they were, they were stealing the sacrifices. They, they weren't obeying God. They didn't know him. So if they didn't know him, they're surely not going to obey him. Exodus 5 verse 2 said, Pharaoh said to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. So he said, I don't know him, so I'm not going to obey him. And so Solomon saying, um, in all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, know God personally. Get to know him. Spend time with him. And part of trusting him means to know God. Get to, get to know him deeper. When we get to know him, look what he does. He says, and he will make straight your paths. Paths is a figurative, and it means like your way or course of life, your fortune of life. And so to make straight is, a, is opposed in the Proverbs to the wicked who has a crooked way. So he says, when you follow God, when you get to know him, he is going to make your path straight. He's going he's to show you what to do. He's going to show you where to go. It means to, it means to make the way free from obstacles, to make your way successful from his perspective. It doesn't mean you avoid trials in life. It just means in the midst of it, God says, I'm going to wake your way straight. I'm going to show you which way to go. I'm going to remove barriers. I'm going to remove obstacles. You might remember in the Old Testament when they were in the wilderness that God said he led them with a cloud by day or a fire by night. Remember that? That was just clearly, visibly um, clear which way God was leading them. So he's saying in the midst of your trials, when you know God, he will show you which way to go. And you think of all, all the different ways that where you guys are right now, all the different ways you need, you need God's direction, you need God's wisdom. You may be thinking, man, where, where, do, I, where do we educate our kids in the, in the, in the fall? Where, where, where are we going to send them to college? What, how much should we be saving for retirement? What type of treatment do we, do we try to pursue for this, for this cancer? Um, what, what, what direction is God leading us as a church? All the different areas in, in just in, in my world, I think, man, what, what are we going to do for life, life group curriculum? What, what, when are we going to start new groups? Who, who should be the people that lead those groups? All these different things that we think about, we need God's wisdom. We say, God, we, I need, we need you to make the path straight. So either I can try to depend on my own wisdom or I can say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to depend on you. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to seek to know you. And I'm going to trust that you're going to make the, the straight the path. You're going to show me what to do. Remember back in the book of Joshua? Remember they were right there on the edge of, of the Jordan River or right on the edge about to cross in to the promised land? They didn't know where to go because they had not been that way before. It said in, in Joshua 3 verse 4, but God would help them. And the way they would know which way to go is they were to follow the ark. 
the presence of God would go before them and he would show them so they would know exactly where to go. And, um, and so Solomon is saying, son, there's going to be times in your life you don't know which way to go. But if you will stay close to God, if you will just seek to know him, then all of a sudden he will remove the obstacles and he will show you what to do. So to trust God means don't lean on your own understanding. It means acknowledge God. And then it means the third thing that it means to do is verse seven. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So Solomon's given a negative positive admonition here. So verse eight, um, it is verse eight that we'll read in a minute. That's what's going to happen if you do verse seven. Verse eight is a natural um, consequence. Being wise in one's own eyes means to rely upon one's own intelligence instead of God's wisdom. The New Living Translation says, don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Um, one writer put it this way, one's private vision of right and wrong must be submitted to God. So it's okay to be smart. You guys are incredibly smart. But in light of that, you say, okay, but I'm not going to trust in my own wisdom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in God. I'm not going to be wise in my own eyes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit um, to God. Earlier, uh, or before I get to that, is then he says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It means depart. Turn away, fear the Lord and depart. Stay away from evil. Uh, fear means to reverence or to honor. I'm just, I have this, this, this appropriate, this accurate view of God. Earlier this week in my devotional time, I was reading about Hezekiah when he prayed to God. And he began praying. He said, oh, Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim. You know, God, you are exalted. You are high and lifted up. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And he's reminding us that, God, you are the creator. You are, you are exalted. You're not a man. You're, 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 you are God. And so fearing God means I'm going to remember who God is. I'm going to have a proper view of him. I'm not going to be wise in my own eyes. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have a great view of God. And when we do that, he says, and, and then turn away from evil. That's the natural consequence. Remember Joseph, when, when Potiphar's wife approached him, he said, how could I do such a thing and sin against my God? He had a proper view of God. He said, God's holy. I, I, I can't do that. And, um, and that's what happens. So when we, uh, when we fear God, when we turn away from evil, and then verse 8 is, is what happens. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So that's, that's the result of what happens when you fear God and turn away from evil. So God's blessing will be on the person's life or the church that trusts completely in God. Now, the term for flesh really is navel. That's what it means. It would be healing to your navel. So it's representative of the whole body. Although I did read, I did read where they said, well, it, you know, it, per, perhaps that it was referring to an infant here that receives its nourishment from its mother that comes into its navel. So it, it, it is interesting. But when we, when we obey God and we fear him, it will, be, it will be healing to our whole bodies. And he says it will be refreshment. It will be like a drink to your bones. So the very the hardest part of our skeleton, our bodily frame, will be refreshed when we seek to obey God. So the term refresher really just really means to drink. It'll be a drink, uh, be a drink uh, down all the way down to your bones. There's something when we spend time with God, when we're obeying Him, we're in fellowship with Him. There is something so energizing and refreshing about being in the presence of God. That's what he's saying. When you obey God, when you trust him, man, it's like you are so refreshed. Um, 
Have you gone back to a high school reunion, you know, and you, you see people that are walking with God and some that are not? And you can literally, you can see a, you can see a difference. And, and um, he's saying, man, when you're obeying God, there will be a freshness, there will be a vitality, there will be an energy and a strength to your, to your life and to um, your body. So the f- first thing we must do, I'm going to give you three things. The first thing we must do, if we're going to s- reveal to the world, man, I've had a total makeover. God has changed in my life. First thing, real simple, is have total trust. Total trust. We've got, we got total, total trust in God. Now, I'm not depending on myself. I'm not depending on my ability. I've got total trust in God. Now, I'm going to show you a picture of what total trust looks like, I hope. Um, do we have, okay, we don't have a picture. Okay, I was going to show you a picture of a son jumping off into his father's arms. That's total trust, right? The son's saying, man, I'm, I'm, if you don't catch me, dad, I'm in trouble. And that's what it means to totally trust God. He's saying, you know, I, if you don't catch me, I'm in trouble here. So you, you just lay yourself out and say, God, I'm at your mercy. You know, who, you know who did that the best of all? Jesus did. Remember what Jesus said in John 6, 38? For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I've come down not to, not to glorify myself. I've come down to trust and obey the Father. I'm here, to, I'm here to do his will. And that's what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will. I'm here, I'm here to obey the Father. And so that's what it means to trust in God. Now, there's two other things that we, that we, we need to do as well. One of them's in verses 9 through 10. The other one's in verses 11 through 12. And so now you begin to, verses 6, 5 through 8 are really about the inner, the, this inner holiness of trusting with all your heart. And now we're going to see it starts to turn to the outer. Now, now our behavior is affected or should be affected because of what's going on on the inside, okay? So verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So notice where Solomon began when he wanted to picture what outward change looks like. He begins talking about your money. Isn't that interesting? Now, is there any better indication to, to determine what's truly important to us than by looking at our money or where we spend it? You could argue, well, our time, that, 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 that's true as well. But I would say, if you really want to see what's important, right, you look at your bank account, right? You look at your checkbook and go, where, where are we spending? What, what, what's, really, what's really valuable to us? Because if you value physical fitness, then, man, you're, you're putting money into that. You value golf, you're putting money into that. You value whatever it is, that's where you're spending some money. So he says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Now, honor is another command uh, in the intensive stem here, stem here, and it means to glorify or to make honorable. I think this is so interesting. The root word for honor means to be heavy, to be heavy, and it signifies giving esteem to a person as having value. So you are declaring that person as having social weight or importance. Isn't that interesting? You're saying, if I, if I honor you, I'm saying you have value. You are significant. You are heavy. Okay. I, I, I see you as having, having uh, social weight and I want to, I want to honor you. I want to, I want to glorify you. I want to, I want to make, uh, I want to give you esteem because you, you are that important to me. And so in this verse, the declaration of honoring God is not made with a speech. It's made with an act. 
It's made with an act. So it's not just, well, I'm just going to praise God, lift my hands. That's fine, but there's another way to honor God. You, you, you honor him as significant or as valuable when you honor him with your revenue, when you honor him with your resource. See, some of you are reading this and it, you say, honor the Lord with your wealth. And you're going, well, I'm not wealthy. So, you know, I've just, I don't have to honor him with that. That's for somebody else. But the word, it really is talking about with your substance. Honor him with your substance. Honor him with the revenue that you receive, little or a lot, whatever it is. It said, that's, that's what you're to honor God with. And honoring him is a way to say, God, all of this came from you. I'm acknowledging that you gave me the strength to work. You gave me this job. You gave me the ability. And I'm going to say, God, you are heavy. I'm, you are significant. You gave this to me. So I'm going to give it to you as an, an act of worship. That's what it means. And so he says um, in the next line, notice what happens. Um, he tells you how, where, where do you start? This is so practical. So he says, honor God with your wealth, but okay, but you know, do I do that at the end? Is that the net? Is that the gross? Um, well, you know, and Prof Hendricks, Howard, Dr. Hendricks used to say, someone asked him, Prof, do you, do you tie the net or the gross? And he would say, he said, which, which do you want God to bless? That's what he'd say. Which do you want God to bless? So he, he was good at asking questions. He says, um, and with the first fruits of all your produce. So honor the Lord with your wealth. And, and okay, well, where do I start, God? And with the first fruits of all your produce. So he's using this agricultural imagery again here. So first fruits can refer to the first child, like in Genesis 49.3, or the first crops that were harvested, Hosea 9.10. Or it can be used as a symbol for the best in uh, Numbers 19, 12, and 13. And I think that's what he's saying here. Honor the Lord with your best, with, 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 with your first, with, with the best of your revenue. Start right there. Start, start at the very beginning. Start right on payday. As soon, soon as you get paid, take, take, take it off the top and honor God with it. Say, God, you are valuable to me. And I'm not gonna just say it. I'm not gonna pr- just pray it. I'm gonna demonstrate it. I'm going to give. That, that's what it, it's, it's an act of worship. Let me read you uh, Deuteronomy uh, 26.10. This is so interesting. Deuteronomy 26.10, it says, And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. I'm going to take the first that God gave me. I'm going to set it down. I'm going to worship. That's what giving is. It's worship. It's saying, God, you gave this to me. And I, I know some of you, we, we give online typically. And so you're not always putting something in the offering plate. But it's whenever we give, we should stop and take that moment and just worship. Say, God, you gave this to me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say you are valuable. You're so valuable that I'm giving this as, as just an act of worship. Saying, thank you. Th- thank, you for, thank you for allowing me to work. Thank you for giving me, thank you for giving me income. And then look what happens. Uh, verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So this is what happens when we honor God with our revenue. He says, um, the agricultural imagery continues. Gener- generally in Israel, harvesting crops began in early April with barley, wheat in late May, and then it ended with grapes and other fruit at the end of September. And so the agricultural produce was stored either in an above ground or below ground uh, structure. And so um, he's, what he's telling him here, Solomon, he's saying, son, when you give to God, you're not going to suffer loss. 
Typically, the question is, am I going to have enough to make it? If I give from the top, am I going to have enough, you know, two weeks later before I get paid again? He's saying, you will have so much, you won't be able to contain it. You're not going to suffer loss, he's telling him. So he says, uh, he's saying, you're going to have plenty. Uh, Your barns will be filled with plenty. And um, that's why giving is an act of faith, because you can't see ahead yet. You don't know that there's going to be plenty. And so it's an act of trust when God, I'm just trusting you to meet our needs. I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm just trusting that, that that's part of trusting in the Lord with all your heart is honoring him off the top and saying, God, I'm, I'm just trusting you. The numbers don't add up, but I'm just, I'm just going to trust you. And so he says, when you do that, your barns will be filled with plenty. You're not going to lack and your vats will be bursting with wine. So, um, this picture is the process of pressing grapes in which the upper storage receptacle is full of grapes. The lower receptacle, which catches the juice, um, the harvest of grapes is so lavish that the lower receptacle is overflowing with juice. It can't even contain all the juice that's present because God has blessed the harvest so much. So he's saying you're not going to have a need. If you'll just give, God will provide more than, than you need, more than you can imagine. You know, Malachi, you, you know this verse well. Malachi 3.10 says that when we give to God, he will open the windows of heaven for you, for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. Isn't that interesting? Not just no more want. You don't have any needs. Like, God, I, God, I, I, you, you've blessed. I, I, we don't need anything else. That's what happens. Matthew Henry wrote this. He, that is God, does not say thy bags, but thy barns, not thy wardrobe replenished, but thy presses. God shall bless thee with an increase of that which is for use, not for show or ornament, for spending and laying out, not for hoarding and laying up. They that do good with what they have shall have more to do good with. Isn't that interesting? He who has, remember, will be given more. This is so interesting. So here's the second thing. First thing, we, get, we must have total trust. If we're going to show to others, man, God has changed me. The second thing, we must give generously. Have total trust. And second, we, we must give generously. That's what it means to trust in the Lord with all your heart is to give generously. And you, know, you don't have to be wealthy to give. You really don't. Let me give you an example of that. Several years ago, there was a, a family in our Sunday school class. This family, they, they were ministers with the Navigators. And he was the camp, the husband was a campus director at University of South Florida, sharp, godly couple, three young children. And, and, um, and so, uh, Christmas was approaching and we were struggling a little bit financially at the time. Well, they, they decided to give us a gift for Christmas. And the best I can remember was $400. Hey, that was a lot of money for us. $400 with young kids that opened up a lot of doors that we just, some things we couldn't have done. You know, what's interesting about this, they just felt prompted to give and they blessed us with that. And it was an incredible blessing. You know what? They raised their own support. These weren't wealthy people. They, they raised support. They send out support letters. They, they travel and meet with people. And, and now they're giving and saying they could have easily used that with three young kids. They could have easily put that away and said, well, we'll probably need that someday. But they're trusting God to meet their needs. And uh, but now he's the director of the University of Virginia. 
and God's, God's blessing their ministry there. So you don't have to be wealthy to be generous. You just have to be obedient. So say, God, I, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to trust you with this. So there's one more way. I heard one of my mentors, I heard him say this one time. I never, miss, I never missed anything I gave away. I never missed anything I gave away. One more way that we reveal that we have a total makeover, and that's found in verses 11 and 12, and it deals with the discipline of, of the Lord. Solomon says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Solomon addressed his son um, Earlier, if you look up in verse 1, he's saying, My son, do not forget my teaching, and, um, but let your, your heart keep my commandments. So he's, he, it, it, we think at that, at that exhortation, that was, that was when the child was young. And he's saying, you know, be careful who you're hanging out with. Be careful the friends you're with. Let steadfast in love. You know, as you're looking forward in your life, these are something you need to, look, you need to pay attention to. And we think in verse 11, now this son is, is, perhaps he's leaving home and he's saying, hey, when you get out there in life, this is something you need to pay attention to. This is something you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to deal with the discipline of the Lord. And here's how you handle it. Here's, here's how you, here's how you re- receive the discipline of the Lord. So he's, he's exhorting, exhorting him. He says, do not despise. There's, there's our third command. So trust, honor, do not despise. Those are the commands. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. Discipline means instruction, and despise means to reject. Do not reject the Lord's discipline. Don't, don't reject the Lord's instruction. The Lord's discipline, it could refer to a sickness or suffering or, or, or something else that was going on, but God's discipline is always designed to correct and to restore, and it's done out of love. To correct or to restore. So he's saying, son, don't reject don't despise. I mean, it means, that means to, to want nothing to do with something or, or someone. So don't despise it. Don't just walk away and have nothing to do with God. Don't, don't, don't do that. Um, and it, it, what Solomon is saying, he's saying, if you trust in the Lord with all your heart you, and don't lean on your own understanding, all your ways acknowledge him, he'll make your path straight. But Solomon realizes there are times you'll end up on another path. There are times you won't always be on the path God has for you. And that may happen because of you were careless and you, you didn't mean to, but somehow you ended up on this path, or it could be because of willful rebellion. So I'm just going to rebel against God, and somehow you found yourself on this path. And he's saying, when you're on this path, don't reject God's discipline. However you got here, don't reject it. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. He's saying, receive it. Don't, don't, don't turn away like you, you don't want anything to do with God. If you find yourself being disciplined, receive it. Don't, don't despise because God wants you to bring you back to this road right here. However you got over here, he wants to bring you back. He's a loving father. He, he wants you to come back. Weary means to shrink from. I'm just going to shrink from. I don't want to have anything to do with God. One source wrote, despise and weary or a double antagonism of will and emotions. It's the an, it's an negation of the chapter's keynote word, which is, which is trust, and would make the discipline useless. So if God tries to discipline you and you reject it, you shrink from it, you despise it, it doesn't, it's not effective. 
and you're not brought back to the right way which God wants for you. Does that make sense? God's trying to correct you, but if you don't receive it, it doesn't work because God's not going to force you. He's not, we're not robots. He's not going to force us to do something. We have a free will. And so we can choose either I'm going to receive that discipline or I'm not going to receive or I'm going to reject it. And so he's saying, don't despise it. Don't, don't, don't despise his correction in your life. Um, and, you know, I, I, I hope that you had a, a, a mom and dad that, that loved you and disciplined you, loved you enough to discipline you when you needed it. I did. I, I love my dad. He was a strong disciplinarian, but I, I love him. And I, I needed every, I deserved every spanking I ever got and probably a lot more. But I, I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that he didn't overlook it. And I remember uh, hearing Dr. Swindoll say one time, he was on his 13th birthday. His, uh, his dad said something about, hey, come on outside and help us in the yard. And, and Dr. Swindoll said something like, no, not today, I'm 13. And uh, he said his dad was in there like that was all over him. And, um, but he said, you know what? He loved me enough not to let me get away with that. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't despise the Lord's, the Lord's discipline. So the wrong response would be to reject it. Be say, no, 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 I'm not going to, I'm not going to, not going to receive that. Remember what Job said in um, Job five seventeen and eighteen. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for He wounds, but He binds up; He shatters, but His hands heal. I don't know if anybody tonight would you would say, man, I'm God's disciplining me for something. Or maybe someone in your family, maybe a coworker, you see something. And if that's where you are, just receive it. No one likes discipline. It's painful. But receive it. Accept it. Say, God, there's got to be a reason you're teaching me this. There's got, there's got to be a reason. You're trying to bring me back. Maybe, maybe you wondered somehow, or maybe the person you're thinking about wondered somehow, and God is trying to bring them back, and they are shrinking from it. They are rejecting it. They don't want anything to do with it instead of just receiving it. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his, his book, The Problem of Pain, he drew the conclusion that when we complain about our sufferings, we are asking not for more love from God, but for less. We're saying, God, I, I don't want you to love me this much because God is allowing us to go through those some things to bring us back. And so we're asking, as this source says, not for God not to take us seriously. So God is seen in Proverbs 3 as a father who loves his son and disciplines his son out of love. And so that's seen, in, in, in this, that's why these verses are quoted in Hebrews 12. You read in, in Hebrews 12, the author wanted to comfort believers who were suffering. And so he quoted these verses to say, God is like a father who's disciplining you. He's loving you to bring you back to him. And so suffering and service to God was a sign of membership or sonship in his family, as one source said. This is what C.S. Lewis said. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. He shouts in our pains. There's something about suffering. There's something about pain that we just, we hear God speaking and it gets our attention and it's loud. Maybe for some of you, God's shouting tonight. You hear him shouting because you're, you're going through something, physical, emotional. Here's the third thing. We must have total trust. We must give generously. The third, we must accept admonition. We must accept admonition. Uh, I was a student at 
Mississippi State University for four and a half years uh, in the program there. Part of that time, I was off campus in an internship. But it was four and a half years total. I never went to one women's basketball game. They, they just weren't that good. When I was there, I just wasn't interested in it. I uh, never went to one game. Now I love to watch them. Anytime they're on, man, they're good. Their they're coach is a believer, right, John? Coach is a believer. You don't, yeah, I think he's a believer. And um, they're just, they're fun to watch. So I was watching them recently. And uh, one of his starters, this was uh, the first round of the NCAA tournament. And so they're playing, and I believe it was early in the second quarter. And uh, one of the players went up for a shot, and it looked like she got fouled. They didn't call it. Um, and she, you know, she, she looked like she was really frustrated. And uh, so then, the, you know, the camera turns off. You couldn't really see what happened. But then it went to a timeout right after that play. So if it zooms in on the coach, and he is lighting into this. And this girl was one of his starters. And you could, the best I could tell what he was saying was, just go ahead and sit down. Just go, just go right, just go ahead and sit down. Apparently, when she didn't get the call, she thought she didn't hustle back on defense, never crossed half court. And so they came back from the timeout, and one of the commentators had picked up on it. And, and he was like, and she said, you know, you want, you want to know how to keep your team motivated? And it showed that replay. And he was just lit into her. And, um, you know, what's interesting, so she sat the rest of that quarter. Starter, no straight up match. She said, no, she came back in the second half and she actually did really well. She hustled. Um, and then it was you kind of the good cop, bad cop. You saw the, well, the assistant coach was sitting next to her and you could see her saying something like, now, okay, I know you got fouled, but, but you can't do that, you know. And, uh, but he disciplined her, but she received it. And she came back in the second half and she was so much stronger. And so I just wonder, I don't know if any of you are undergoing some type of discipline or you know someone or maybe down the road, your God's going to allow you to do something, just receive it. Just accept it. It's okay, God. There's got to be something you want me to learn. When a home is complete on the inside and the outside, it's a beautiful thing. And when a Christian has an outward manifestation of what God's done on our inside, it's a beautiful thing as well. When we're giving, when we're receiving admonition, it's proof that we trust God with all of our hearts. You want to pray about that? Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us with that. It's not easy. Let's ask him to help us. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that um, you know our hearts, you know our situations. Thank you that you make your word so practical, Lord. Just, just so simple. You make it so clear what you want us to do. And I pray that you'd forgive me, forgive us when we've not trusted, trusted in you with all of our hearts. Forgive us when we've depending on our own understanding or our own ability or experience or whatever it was. Uh, Father, forgive us when we've not sought to know you as much as we should. But would you help us tonight by your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to just to have a desire to want to wanna know you more, to acknowledge you in all of our ways, Lord? Father, would you give us the courage to trust you and to honor you with the, the first of the income that you provide for us? Your word says, test me in this, test you in that. So would you give us the courage just to give? And uh, God, we do it in faith. Father, would you help us to receive the admonition that you give us? Help us to accept it. Help us not to reject it or to shrink from it, to despise it, but help us to receive when you're correcting us, Lord, so that we'll, be, we'll become more like Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God. So I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord, that you would encourage them, 
you'd be the lifter of their heads tonight, that you'd walk out of here encouraged and um, more like Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you for the time to have met together. In Jesus' name, amen.